You are listening to Mosaic Talk, a spoken word show about race relations in Canada. Before we begin our show, it's important to acknowledge the land that we're on. By acknowledging the land, we are respecting the Indigenous peoples, their contribution and ways of knowing, which are reflected through the stories and songs that have lived in this land for thousands of years. We would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, compromising of the Siksika, Pigani, and Ghana First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspa, and Wesley First Nation. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. We feel most when we don't know. If we shout the lines, there'll be no war zone. I don't know we go wrong. Till we go gone. I just wanted to let you know. Mosaic Talk. Hello and welcome to Mosaic Talk, a show led by Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation, a not-for-profit volunteer group compromising of Gen Z and millennials who work to improve race relations and promote multiculturalism across Canada. I am your host, Iman Bukhari, and on this show, we talk about all things race relations and its various intersectionalities. So we've been running the Spoken Word Show in partnership with CGSW for about three years now, and this year will actually be our last year on air. It's been such an amazing experience volunteering for this initiative and getting our message across to the airwaves, to you listeners, of course. And today's show will actually be the last traditional type of show where I have a guest or a few guests and they speak about certain topics and talk about themselves. Because for the rest of the year, we will actually be doing a sort of hybrid of mosaic talk slash a new podcast I worked on called Finding Common Ground which will be more focused on the state of race relations and hate crimes and hate incidents across Alberta. This is actually in partnership with a co-host from Edmonton named Irfan Chaudhry, who was a hate crime specialist. So we'll be giving you a sneak peek of that until the end of the year. All right, listeners. So today on our show, we have Jackie Aquinas, who is a community builder in Calgary. Welcome to Mosaic Talk. Thanks, Simon. So tell us about yourself, maybe some hobbies, your school interests, background, things like that. Well, I was born on unceded Mohawk territory in Montreal, and I am now a very active member of Sikalohiyan Filipino um, discussion groups that started last year with a few of my mentors discussing the distinction between, um, I guess, westernized psychology and cultural group dynamics that happen within the Filipino community. There's a a huge distinction between the way we operate uh, collectively within the Filipino community that also translates to how we move in spaces in the dominant culture. Um, My main passion is is anti-racism. I'm part of the AROC project through CommunityWise, the Anti-Racism Organizational Change Project. I've been with them for the past two, three years. I'm on the advisory group and we do trainings in anti-racism for many groups that just ask Thalassie Lettner, you should check her out, uh, at CommunityWise to uh, facilitate any trainings that might help 
organizational change. I'm also in the on the board of Voices, the Two Spirit LGBTQIA Coalition of People of Color, and we also do trainings、um, in partnership with AROC. Okay, wow. So it seems like you're doing a lot of awesome work. I'm just wondering, did you go to school for something similar? I did cultural studies at McGill many, many years ago. I started out in English literature and moved into the program when I discovered that it was far more、uh, of a more broader understanding and, and more、um, interdisciplinary with film and culture. And I also did a minor in East Asian studies. I wanted to focus on、uh, the Philippines, of course,、uh, but at the time, actually, it's still only. Uh, focuses on the three East Asian countries that are recognized by McGill <laughs> China, Japan, and Korea. So I just focused on Chinese literature and Mahayana Buddhism. Oh, wow. So I know, according to Statistics Canada, at least for Calgary,、uh, Filip- Filipinos are like the third largest. Immigrant population in the city, if I'm quoting that correctly.、Uh, so that's really awesome、yeah. that you do a lot of work in your community. And I'm just curious, what part of Philippines is your family from? My dad's from Capiz and my mom's from Tacloban City. So my dad speaks Bisayan and my mom speaks that as well, but her main dialect was what I, and she also speaks Cebuano. And, and that's really awesome because, and, and I'm really glad you said that,、uh, even if you were from like. Um, where they speak Tagalog, but like a lot of people have that、uh, misunderstanding that all Filipinos、uh, only speak Tagalog or that's like the main language kind of thing, but there's so many different、uh, languages and dialects in Philippines. so... The diversity of, of dialects and cultures are very, very、uh, vast in the Philippines. Like, it's like hundreds of islands, similar to Turtle Island, where some people assume that indigenous culture is just one pan indigenous, like monolithic culture, where there's multiple languages. If you just drive from Calgary to Red Deer, you're crossing Treaty 7 territory to Treaty 6, and you're going from Blackfoot territory to Dene or Cree territory. Uh, like, there's so many languages like, within indigenous cultures, and that's what the Philippines was made, of, made by.、Yeah. And I'm just curious because my stepmom is Filipino, so she told me about this and she said that she had to learn Spanish in school. And I'm not sure if that, that's still a thing there or. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm assuming it's、yeah. going to be similar to that of like, French being、uh, mm-hmm. the second language in countries that were colonized by France. And there's also families in the Philippines who still speak Spanish at home. They're either insulares, who are Filipinos born within the archipelago, or peninsulares, Iberian Peninsula born. I know you have your own organization, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that, because I know you're, you're doing a lot of work with that these days. Yes, I am a community builder for. For Equity, that's what it's called. Forequity.ca. If you want to check it out, it'll be up, launched soon <laughs> by the end of this month.、Uh, and it just encapsulates all of the things that I love to do、um, toolkits, trainings, facilitations,、um, having panels, discussions.、Uh, recently, it's part of the work I do.、Uh, I, I started this organization with Rossman Valencia, Kathleen Bragas, and Francia Bodosa,、uh, and other Philippine X. Uh, members of the, the service sector. It's about being more inclusive with LGBTQ2IA Filipinx within the community because、uh, there rarely are any supports. 
as a very Roman Catholic country, most Filipinos rarely ever have the conversation about sexuality and gender at home. So it's hard. They're hard pressed. We're hard pressed to find uh, support uh, discussing or even addressing the needs that are very specific to the LGBTQ2A community. Recently, in June, June 21st, we screened Joella Cavallo's film, It Runs in the Family. It's only on OutTV, and it looks at uh, this, his, her family's history uh, and relationships with Roman Catholicism and the LGBTQ2IA within their family. There's like six relatives of theirs uh, who uh, are part of that community, and they travel from uh, like throughout California and to the Philippines to look at that. And that's the first time I had ever seen anything like that in a film. And I just recently discovered, I emailed uh, Kevin Nadal, who's a very prominent uh, psychologist with the Philippinex diaspora. And, and, and he said that they screened that film at, uh, at a uh, conference mm -hmm. uh, to discuss that because it was back in 2016 and I didn't even know. So yeah, we're a few years behind, but I think we're, we're starting in the right place. That's awesome. So is sport equity like more focused on the Filipino context or? Uh, well, I, I'm personally in, uh, invested in the Filipinx context, but for equity is across all mm -hmm. ethnicities and cultures because anti-racism isn't just within the Filipino community mm -hmm. and, yeah. and Calgary is a, a very diverse city, uh, but mostly uh, <laughs> with leadership that has opportunity to improve cultural humility, to improve yeah. cultural humility. Yeah, definitely. And talking about leadership, you know, that's so important because I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, whether it's like anti-racism or inclusive work or whatever and saying that, well, we have so much diversity. What do you mean that there's racism or there's discrimination? But it's like, who are our leaders? <laughs> like, how how is the systemic uh, change going to happen if our leaders are all, all white males? Which, I mean, if we look at all the premiers across Canada, they, they are. That's a great way to be an ally is if you make space for people who need self-representation. Instead of saying, oh, I'll ask this impacted group by oppression or any sort of systemic issues at what they need, and then I'll speak on behalf of them and represent them. All good. Also, for equity.ca, what an awesome website address like how did you get that did it take you forever or like you had to like buy it off somebody or you no. just got lucky yeah i got lucky okay, really lucky good. uh i think there's one for equity.com but it's for like investments okay. you know mm -hmm. like equity oh, investing okay. yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah I, I really was happy with equity being the the focus of the work mm -hmm. i do because uh, whether you're talking about uh, inclusion or diversity you can't have equity without inclusion mm -hmm. and you can't have inclusion without diversity so the underlying goal and the common denominator that we're all trying to achieve is equity. And I think uh, once organizations, individuals learn what that is, uh, I think we'll be better off in many, many respects. And Stephen Frost's book, The Inclusion Imperative, How Real Inclusion Creates Better Decisions and Builds Better Societies from way back in 2014. He mentions that diversity is a reality, inclusion is a choice. And to expand on that, diversity is all around us. Inclusion has to be intentional from a leadership position. And if you do have any sort of anti-racism training, it should be externally brought in, <laughs> FYI. Um, equity must be strategic, as in written into an organization's mission, vision, values, and strategic plan. 
that accommodates a dynamic response to change so that they are publicly accountable to their stakeholders. This should dictate how a board is selected and what skill sets are required uh, to represent stakeholders and leadership choices of strategic intentional equity create inclusive cultures. Awesome. So I'm wondering if you can tell me maybe something that you've learned over the past year or, or many things that you've learned, a few things that you've learned, especially with all the awesome work that you're doing for equity and whatnot. Yes, that's a great question. So I, in the past year, uh, I left Action Dignity in February, but previously I was in the position of the People's Cafe, which is now run by uh, Tyra Erskine. And that's the People's Coalition to Advance Fairness and Equity. And then after that, I did the program coordinating for uh, the Initiative for Diversity, Inclusion and Equity in Alberta nonprofits. And that position gave me a lot of opportunities to work in the field that I really care about, EDI. And I worked with the city. I worked with big brothers and sisters on their equity and inclusion advisory board. And what I learned is that leadership it's very it's very white i will just say that mm -hmm. a lot of organizations are run by white people in the service sector i found that people are afraid of giving up power and that's why a lot of impacted groups by serve the service sector do not have that space are often inserted into the programming at very superficial levels or hired for diversity for optics ask like when you say a lot of people are afraid of giving up power like are you talking about like personal power like personal position or like family position or like really a race position or there was a lack of engagement with with racialized groups with uh mostly people who are who live in in the community or communities that are represented by the community associations i saw verbatim that certain individuals in leadership positions are unwilling or afraid of losing power because the, the shift was going to go to a district forum. Uh, instead of just being community associations, just uh, the structure for representation would be directed towards the community associations. Whereas in Seattle or other cities that might have a district forum, uh, there's a way of setting up the structure so that you have organizations within the communities that have enough momentum and enough enthusiasm by their their stakeholders and membership to represent what those needs are and what their issues are and speak on behalf of their groups as opposed to having community associations that are mostly led by retired non-racialized people and or then lack diversity whether it's LGBTQIA or a, a, any other abilities needs or mm -hmm. anything outside of what is considered like the dominant culture, mm -hmm. uh, then those voices are not rarely, mm -hmm. you know, addressed. So it's essentially, it's like if it's not a priority to you, it's not going to be a priority to somebody else. And maybe it's like people aren't even aware that they're that they're doing this, and because they're so into their bubbles and and whatnot. But uh, knowing that, what do you think or what do you wish that people kind of understood, you know, on whether it's like experiences that you've had with your organization or other work that you've done? What is something that you wish people got? More than anything, I wish that impacted groups and I, I'm not and I'm not saying marginalized because I don't like saying marginalized. I, mm -hmm. I prefer to say impacted groups by whether it's white supremacy or oppression of 
of groups that just don't have that voice. And sorry, why do you not like to say marginalized? Because it's looking, it's always referring to the dominant culture as people, the default, whereas other people are othered. They are the people of color, not the people. As I've, I've read and shared your language decoded document multiple times, language really shifts the way we see each other, the way we see ourselves even. And so what I would love to see is that people who are impacted by systems that may not serve their needs, I would like to see that they have power in their voice, that they have the ability to self-advocate, that they don't have to just take what they can get. As a colonized person, like I'm, I'm racialized, I am Filipinx, my home country, my parents' home country was colonized for 300 years by the Spaniards, 50 years by, by America, and then a few years by Japan. As colonized people, we as tend to have, to have tended to take what we can get and have only recently learned how to speak up for myself and say what I would need in a space. Also, I think EDI is becoming, well, diversity is, is definitely a, a corporate term that's been a buzzword that's changing uh, things superficially and also creating a certain niche market as well. But I would really like to hear people who are impacted the most to learn how to advocate for themselves and that it's not their responsibility to educate the dominant culture, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's people who identify as white, people who are um, able-bodied. Like, we don't need to take what we can get only. And I think for a lot of people, this is hard to comprehend. So I wonder if we can, if, you know, if there's anybody listening on air, for example, or listening to this podcast later on, like if you are in that position, you're working for a company and, you know, decent sized company, for example, and you want to promote different diversity initiatives, whether it's like Black History Month or Pride Month or, or whatever it may be, uh, what are some good tips maybe that you can think of to not tokenize the person, for example, or like just make it an awkward situation even though you might have good intention what are some good tips that you think they can learn from great question i found that having relationships with people is paramount to any sort of advocacy work because it's understanding and knowing people as opposed to making assumptions or just reading statistics that you can translate into programs or some sort of toolkit that can be shared or sold. Also to give people the space that they need to create programs for themselves and not just at a, a very, not just bringing in people during that month or during the season to be considering a certain advocacy campaign, but to have a long-term goal of creating space for and considering uh, special needs of of all intersectionalities from a very strategically organizational foundation. Um, if you're looking at creating a program for the month of, of, of Pride, for example, or, well, Pride slash Filipino Heritage Month, <laughs> then, and, and the relationship begins in May. Uh, that does not seem authentic uh, at the core of, of true allyship. It needs to come from a long-term relationship. Yeah, and it goes beyond just, like you said, a month. And it's really about understanding 
the impacts that the community has as well. And I think a lot of people struggle with that because they love all the fun things like, um, you know, like whatever event may be happening that month or, or maybe the month is dedicated to that. It might be like, oh, I, I love Filipino culture. I love Filipino people. So let me just promote that within my organization. That's awesome. But then there's a lot of other things, too. So everybody wants to talk about the good things. We love sharing food, music, clothes, things like that. But then what about the other things? Like why? I, I just feel like a lot of the times people are like kind of shying away from talking about these real issues that really do impact these communities. 100%. And often when we're looking at a heritage month, it, it, it does focus on the, the cultural retrospective. Whereas we live today and have new, new, new issues that that need to be addressed, like for example, like temporary foreign workers from the Philippines who move here uh, and leave their family behind in the Philippines. So remittance is one of the largest uh, sources of, of uh, sources of uh, the the GDP in the Philippines. Uh, that was a huge move. Uh, initiative by the Marcos regime and and so which is probably why you may see Filipinos working everywhere no matter where you go like mm -hmm. it, it's, it's temporary foreign workers are a strong part of uh, the Canadian economy and these people are often leaving children behind mm -hmm. and now and then when they've been here for a certain number of years there's a process called reunification where their children come and there's this hard harsh reality of of once the honeymoon phase is over where you we, oh great like mom's here together with the children they find out they don't know each other it's been a transactional relationship for Five, ten years, five, uh, many. Some they grew up entirely without their parents. They'll come here when they're in their twenties, and they don't know who they are. And there's a hard reality where there's this new immigration wave is is impacting children, so that they are not as engaged in school. There's a higher dropout rate. There's a higher attrition rate of Filipino males, especially for go going to university. They have a lower attendance or even um, applying because they have to take care of their families or there's just many other factors involved that that have created this gap between males and females. Often the it's females who are hired as temporary foreign workers. So the men that are left behind in the Philippines when they come here, it's a totally different dynamic where their wives, their partners have assimilated successfully and they're brand new to the Canadian culture. This is never talked about. We're, it's always the sell, the hard, high sell of American dreams, Canadian, well, Canadian-American dreams of this is the place where we can, we can build better lives for ourselves. But what's not looked at is how our, how our families impacted by this, this dream. And these are, you know, hard harsh realities essentially that every community faces like every community of course has their own struggles 
no matter what community you're from. And I know, like, you know, if it's like a heritage month or whatever, you don't want to talk about things that make people sad because you're trying to, like, just look at the positives. But there are ways to talk about both the negatives and the positives. And that's that's how you come up with these solutions working together. So if there is this issue and you know, especially because, you know, there's a huge stereotype about Filipino women being... And, and I remember there was, like, this video that went viral once of this little kid that came on screen once once his dad was talking on on camera it was like bbc news or something like that and his dad was white and automatically people were like that's a nanny when it's like no that's the child's mom <laughs> so like they didn't associate a mother but rather a nanny because they're so used to that stereotype so imagine if you if you do educate you know whatever programming that you're doing on these kind of issues because then people can get away from those stereotypes yeah, so I know, Jackie, you kind of touched on this earlier on, but um, really my last question for you is how can people be better allies? And I know that's kind of like a big loaded question, but if you can give us some tips, that would be awesome. I think giving people the autonomy to utilize funds for their community directly is probably a strong way of being an ally. Well-intentioned organizations and people want to be a part of change which is great. Pay people for their lived experience when you're doing when they're doing facilitations or trainings on cultural humility. I, I think or any sort of uh, impacted groups experience because when you pay them, that's giving them the power to and credibility of their own experience. It's valuing their life, their lived experience as opposed to just hoping they'll do it for free. But that's getting better with honorariums and Make space for people from impacted communities. I think I said this before, in positions of power. And, and I think that's a way of being an ally so that sometimes you just have to get out of the way for people to be represented. Uh, there are quite a few boards uh, that, are, that don't represent their stakeholders, and that's a fail. An organization's culture is often reflective of an EED's, an executive director's values. And if an organization's mission statement and vision lacks intentional inclusion and equity, that is reflective of leadership's intention. You need to have people speak for themselves as opposed to having having uh, like a secondhand understanding of, of, of an impacted community. If your organization is focusing on racialized people in the mental health um, in the mental health services. You need to have racialized people doing the service work so that there isn't a gap of of the cultural understanding. Like there's so many different levels of, of and needs that someone outside of a culture may not be able to address. Uh, if you are on a board or a leader in an organization that addresses LGBTQIA needs, you need to be part of the community. No tourists. <laughs> yeah, and it needs to be beyond just a check mark. Like, we need to have this amount of diverse people in our organization check mark. It's about actually wanting these people part of your organization and, and seeking, seeking them out as well. Absolutely. And, and having the people who are on your board understand what intersectionality is as a framework, not as an identity. To be an intersectional feminist is, is, is not how you should term it. It should be 
Your understanding of intersectionality needs to address race, class, gender, abilities, all of the levels of marginalization or impact that may not be considered. If To be the, a really good ally is to care about a group or to care about a cause without it directly impacting you. I think that's the best way to be an ally is to consider that you don't have to understand what it feels like to be that oppressed group without taking on that struggle as your own. And you don't have to wait to be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, have a kid that's mixed. So like, this is important to me. You, you can, it can still matter to you. You can still be a decent human being, essentially, and still care about other people. All right, Jackie, thank you so much for coming on our show. And her website is forequity.ca. That will be launched later on this month. So if you're looking for a community builder, highly recommend her. And thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, listeners, for sticking around for Mosaic Talk. Starting next month, our shows will change a little and will be more focused on race relations in Alberta. And I will be a co-host, so I will actually have another host named Irfan Chaudhry. So you don't want to miss our next episode, so make sure you keep listening every month. And I will catch you next time. <laughs>